Got it. Welcome to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. Thought-provoking interviews with interesting guests and commentary on everything. Food, sports, God, gardening, church, politics, music, movies, comedy, you name it, we talk about it. I'm Cody Stopper. And this is Craig Morton. On this podcast, we talk to writers, teachers, activists, and we seek some wisdom. And as always, we are allergic to big words. But not some big ideas. Profound things will be said, but entirely by accident. So I know we're not going to say big words, but I heard a big word today that is really cool, but now I forgot what it was. So maybe I'll bring it up later. That's because you're allergic to big words. So I just, yeah, so re- I'll just have bring it up completely out of context. So <laughs> like, uh, I was, uh, modern, I was- on modern, on modern family, uh, one of the, oh. the mother Claire says she's in a book club and she wanted to join to feel smart, but she just felt stupid because they kept using words like sanguine. And she she tried to use it to sound smart, and she kept using it in the wrong place. But but that's also the show with the, one of the most profound thinkers, uh, and he you know takes those moments of, for philosophy, you know. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, those are good. I think the <laughs> word was was something like almost like, uh, yeah, uh, hero sark, hero sark, hero carpets. Hero, oh boy, cophagus. Hero, cophagus. Maybe that's hero, cophagus. I think that's what it was. Like hero, yeah, and it and it had to do with something like uh, it's a it's it's used to describe communion, and it's like I don't that's it's like eating the holy one. <laughs> Whoa, hero, cophagus. Okay, I'm gonna I'm googling it. How I imagine it sound it it shows re, is showing results for sarcophagus right which clear, means which clear. with the so the cophagus part is the digestive part you know, yeah so it's the same word, word word that comes for tongue and things like that sure it's connected to it but um sarcophagus actually it means flesh-eating box is the way it translates into egypt <laughs> or, i'm not egypt into into latin and uh Oh, that's it's like that's interesting. Flesh eating box. It's like don't step in that. Here, sarcophagus. Okay, I'm trying again. Still wants me to <laughs> wants to use sarcophagus. Yeah, wow, so where did we'll you hear to... this? It was on. <laughs> well, I don't remember. I think yeah. the ice I... has been broken with this one. It. I think it was on on. Um... Pete ends and uh, on their uh, Bible oh. for normal people. Oh yeah, they they like to throw around big words. They are not. Well, this the... is this is one of their guests. Oh yeah, they bring on so. guests who throw around big words. They're not. Yeah, blue, and that... they're not blue collar podcast. That's for sure. Well, you know, I there is a little blue collar streak. I think in Pete ends. <laughs> oh yeah, um, but yeah, it was really interesting. Actually, they're talking about how the Gospel of John is set up in such a way that. The Gospel of John 
emphasizes the duality of Jesus, all the spirit, sure. you know, mm-hmm. stuff and the very fleshiness of it. Yeah. And the uh, the idea was that in chapter six of John, it really focuses on the idea that you you eat the holy one, you eat this divine figure. And that's part of the anti-Gnostic part. It's like, yeah, right. this is fleshy. You're supposed to eat this. Yeah. No. Anyway, so much for that. Uh, Take off. What, <laughs> before, before we get lost, let's start our agenda. Yeah. Let's do it. Uh, quarter one. First quarter. Oh, we, we, we got to have an icebreaker first. Yeah, oh, we, here we go. Ice is broken. Icebreaker. Oh, here we go. What's the question? Animals, right? What, what in, your, in your opinion, is the most amazing animal? Huh. The most amazing animal, in my opinion, is, hmm, gosh, how about axolotls are pretty amazing. A what? <laughs> axolotls. So it's a uh, it's kind of like a salamander. It's related to a salamander it's in in a sense, and it's amphibious, of course. Uh, lives underwater all the time, basically. And uh, yeah, they're pretty cool. Huh? That's good. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. You know, I I'm always fascinated by those deep sea fish that live in the dark. Oh yeah, you know, like lantern fish, but they got these really gnarly looking teeth. Ooh. Um. So those, like those are amazing huh? animals. <laughs> I don't know. And, you know, so my dog's just sleep in here. Like, you, you yeah. didn't mention my name. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. My, I mean, my dog is cool, obviously. but Cool. But, yeah. Amazing? Yeah. Amazing. Not, so. He's not. Yeah. <laughs> I see videos every now and then where they're like, they're showing other dogs. You know, the, the title says other dogs. And it's this dog doing this incredible thing, running up a wall and leaping, you know, 20 feet off the wall to leap out and grab a hold of a something suspended in the air right and then and then it goes and it's like this majestic music playing and then the record skips and then it's my dog and then the dog's like the dog owner's tossing food to the dog and it like bounces off its head you know or something <laughs> yeah yeah that's like my dog i'm the in yeah. the, i'm in the second part of that video you know do you think you know i wonder if the angels do something like that you know can you imagine that so favorite human being what's the most amazing creature you can think of and somebody says oh the oxawaddle coddle thing that you mentioned or whatever (laughs) and somebody goes oh these people are pretty cool too and then they throw a piece of cheese and it just hits us in the face and we just kind of like huh what we trip and fall yeah so (laughs) yeah that's probably it yeah yeah that's that's gotta be it that's gotta be it. <laughs> All right, ice is broken. The animals, ice is broken. <laughs> you and I are not known for our zoological knowledge, but no, no, and it's um, and there's there's a reason for that. <laughs> we got other tastes. It's, it's 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 something we haven't studied. That's so, right. That's right. that's right. Speaking of things we have studied, though, we're still in our series on white Christian nationalism, and this will be part two later on of. Our interview of uh, Drew Strait, your interview of Drew Strait. What do you want to talk yeah. about to warm us up before it? I th- I think your, maybe... your heading says on the net notes says people are nuts. <laughs> is, that what, <laughs> is that what it said? Well, it yeah. does say that, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So people um, are nuts. Yeah, people are nuts. Mm. Um, Would you care to elaborate on? Well, 
<laughs> so <laughs> I was, I've, I've, I've got this quote on here from this organization. I'm trying to find this. Oh yeah. Let's there's a, blunt. there's nice. a, there's a website that, I mean, some of these websites purport to be very intellectual, uh, yeah. very um, well studied. They use, you know, much better grammar than I do. And, you know, they look really smart. And one of them that really disturbs me is uh, called the Claremont Institute. Oh. <laughs> now, the Claremont Institute should not be confused with yeah. uh, Claremont. Well, I, I've just noted as Claremont. Is it Claremont University? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which has, uh, you know, it's kind of like the the pillar of, of um, open theology and philosophy mm -hmm. uh it's a bedrock of uh i think united methodist if i'm not sure at least has a wesleyan connection yep and uh but this other place where i first saw this this um christian nationalist you know garbage coming from someplace and it said claremont institute i thought wait what no what uh -oh, that what? can't be right is this <laughs> is this a different wing of the school that doesn't no. speak to the theology department <laughs> uh, and they're completely unrelated Yes, so, just location yeah, so, might, must be the only yeah. connector, uh, yeah, meaning my, it, town, town yeah. Of Claremont, yeah. Yeah, so my guess is there's also a place called Claremont Used Cars, and they have nothing to do with theology, <laughs> or right. Claremont Bakery, you know. Yes. Um, but the Claremont Institute um, is is one of those places that tries to purport a, you know, a very, very intellectual um, kind of uh, forward thinking, and I think they're trying to impress um, kind of, I guess you'd call it the intelligentsia that Christian nationalism is on par with other, you know, philosophical political movements, either that, or it's trying to convince its followers that, um, you know, here's some rhetorical ammo. So you can throw this at the elites who are, you know, contrary to us. Oh boy. So I'm not really sure, you know, I wouldn't, I, I would be great to hear how other people perceive that. But yeah. one of those, it's um, another uh, place that's uh, aligned with that is a place called Hillsdale College. Oh, okay. And Hillsdale, I, I became familiar with it because after the 1619 project came out from the yes. New York Times, mm -hmm. um, this is during the Trump administration. The Trump administration was you know, quite critical of the 1619 project. And though the Trump administration, I don't believe anything to do with Hillsdale's uh, project yeah, um, the response huh? it it later came out through um a, some commentary i believe from the former president uh, some documents that had come out of hillsdale so it was this idea that hillsdale influence was getting into the administrative uh the administration yeah the the president and, was mainstreaming them a bit yeah yeah and and one of the things they had written was called the 1776 report Ooh. And it's it's almost like, gosh, can you say 1619 project in just a slightly different way? You know, it's like wasn't <laughs> even wasn't even trying to um, you know beat around the bush. It was like, well, you think 1619's got a project? Well, we've got a report. Well, here's our response. <laughs> and so so I read through it and it was a it was um it was a a document about basically the birth of a nation and uh -oh. how this nation came to be. And so many of the 
difficult issues of how to, you know, what happened to indigenous people? What happened, you know, what, what about chattel slavery and the kidnap of Africans? You know, uh, what happened to the economic, um, you know, the foundations that were, you know, built on the backs of slave labor. And, right. you know, of course, none of that was in there. None of it was, was alluded to, or I should take that, I take that back. It was alluded to, but it wasn't, uh, gone into what are the ramifications of this but i think the thing that bothered me the most more than anything else was the lack of footnotes i mean this was like an opinion piece this this thing was an opinion piece it had some uh cited sources but there was you know this is a this is a a document that's trying to present history right uh present a historical story but it had no um, I shouldn't say no. It had very weak citation, and many of the claims it made did not have a reference Ooh. to well, where this idea come from. And so it it my initial reading was again I was putting on my professor I'm going to grade this paper kind of mindset, <laughs> right. and it was like okay cite your sources cite your sources, um, mm-hmm. and you know so it didn't pass my my test because of that. Didn't um, pass the muster. Didn't didn't pass, pass the, the Craig muster. muster. But one of the things that Hillsdale College is doing is Hillsdale is uh, one of the areas that they're really building up is to be a resource for homeschooling. Ooh. And and so, you know, they're wanting to make sure that their version of American history becomes a, you know, the, the homeschool version. Uh, My uh-oh. hunch is, uh, and I believe if I'm not mistaken, I don't want to, you know, get too far off, but I believe right. there's also a connection with the previous administration's uh, cabinet secretary for education uh betsy devos right you're probably right and so there is this this um i would say it's it is anti-intellectual it doesn't want to proceed doesn't want to look at the difficult parts of history and learn from it it would rather present propaganda that we can organize around so that so that it was hillsdale college and it was claremont that made me think yeah people are nuts yeah um, and I'm really disappointed because I keep getting uh, Hillsdale College emails and right, junk mail you... to my mailbox because I ordered that uh, 1776 report. So now and, you're getting all this junk mail. Yeah, and and it's you know it's it's amazing it's amazing propaganda. I I, yeah. I think it's actually you know very very well done if you're going to do that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, then one of the other organizations that that made me think you know, people are nuts is another one called the American mind. (laughs) Okay. And so I have a, an extended quote from an article that's on um, the American mind website. That's uh, saying why the Claremont Institute is not conservative and you shouldn't be either. Um, Wait, wait, in other words, the Claremont Institute isn't conservative. Yeah, The title of the document is why the Claremont Institute is not conservative and you shouldn't be either. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> and and so here's here's some quotes and and I think I dug these quotes out of um, or I dug this this article. Uh, Phil uh, Phil Gorski and Samuel Perry refer to it in their book, The Flag and the Cross. Mm. And uh, I think that's where I, yeah I think that's where I found um, this reference. But just to read uh, a couple of paragraphs from this document or this article on the American mind. Okay. It says, let's be blunt. The United States has become two nations occupying the same country. When pressed, 
or in private, many would now agree. Few are willing to take the next step and accept that most people living in the United States, certainly more than half, oh. are not Americans in oh. any meaningful sense of the term. I don't just mean the millions of illegal immigrants. Obviously, those foreigners who have bypassed the regular process for entering our country and probably will never assimilate to our language and culture are politically as well as legally aliens. I'm referring to the many native-born people, some of whose families have been here since the Mayflower, who may technically be citizens of the United States, but are no longer, if they ever were, Americans. Oh, no. They do not believe in, live by, or even like the principles, traditions, and ideals that until recently defined America as a nation and Oof. as a people. It is not obvious what we should call these citizen aliens, Oof. these non-American Americans, but they are something else. Authentic Americans are men, not gerbils or robots. If you are a zombie Oof. or a human rodent, who wants a shadow life of timid conformity, then put away this essay, essay and go memorize. Uh, oh wait, if you do, if you are a zombie and you want to be that, then go uh, put away this essay and memorize poetry of Amanda Gorman. Real men <laughs> and women who love honor and beauty keep reading. Authentic oh my, Americans oh my gosh. will want to have decent lives. Holy and so God. they throw down this. They throw down this challenge that if you're a real American. Um, you, wow. you, know, you need to, you need to follow us. And the reason they're saying that the Claremont Institute is not conservative and you shouldn't be either. These aren't even conservative values. They're talking about more reactionary values. Mm. They're talking that, you know, those, those, um, mainstream Republicans, like, uh, how very few there are anymore, but, you know, Mitt Romney, <laughs> sure. perhaps, um, the ones that Gosh. get kicked out, basically. <laughs> yeah, the ones that get kicked out. Those are the ones, you know, that if that's what conservatism, we shouldn't be that. Oof. Oh, and, you know, these are these are the voices that uh, gain uh, gain a hearing and are listened to. And one of the things about that quote about separating real Americans from those, you know, citizen aliens, <laughs> it made me think of the recent news about Scott Adams. Oh yeah, sure. Move away and the from... Dilbert thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Move and away had, from had... those people. But yeah, but he was much more specific about who those people were. Black, black people. Yeah, yeah. I could not believe that. And uh, I don't have links handy for that to throw into the 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 notes <laughs> Nobody, here. But I you know, <laughs> just people go, look it up if find, you want. Go find Scott Adams' awful comments. <laughs> uh, but how does how does somebody with a huge public hearing you know public audience like scott adams have the freedom mm -hmm. and the power to say something like that it's because he knows he has an audience who agrees yeah that's right yeah and he probably doesn't know or it doesn't care anymore if he gets dropped from whatever because actually so i've read in the fall fallout from that you know obviously he's been dropped but his comic strip has been dropped by lots of newspapers but apparently in the last nine months or a year he's um crafted a sizable subscription list that, that pays him every month so he probably doesn't need those so <laughs> the newspapers anymore. Sub, sub stack or something like <laughs> whatever that. it is yeah. Yeah yeah, yeah 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 so he's got an so he knows that's you're right he knows he's got this audience they're, they're so committed they pay money every month to him directly so yep yep 
He so, can remove think, all uh, pretenses anymore about, <laughs> you know, trying to be palatable, I guess, to the wider audience, I suppose. Ah, horrible. So what I think one of the, just as a closing thought, the reason I, the reason I got into that whole tangent is because I was reading, you know, this book by Gorski and mm-hmm. Perry reviewing it again. And they, they put kind of everything that's going on with Christ, uh, Christian nationalism um, under this uh, trinity of order, freedom, and violence. Order, freedom, and violence. Yep. And everything's got to be ordered and controlled and organized. Which is really interesting because control and freedom don't really seem to go hand in hand. But it's it's an idea of protecting the freedoms that they identify as valuable. Right. right. Which and that's all anyone is ever trying to do anyway. So you would think well, my mom has come to the conclusion, you know, she's really separated herself away from. She'd be those people. They're saying if that's what conservative is, you don't want to be conservative. That would be my mom. And she is over the last few years has made this realization. Look, people I disagree with really have at least in they have similar values and principles that I do. It's just, we disagree on how we get there, you know, or right, how we, whatever, right. but yeah. So. <laughs> well, yeah. And that, and that's, what's so significantly different about this idea of freedom is it's, it's a select yeah. uh, mm-hmm. idea and anything more than that. Yes. You know, such as, you know, uh, civil rights for, you know, queer folk. Yeah. No, 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 that's no, that's that's disorder. Even though that's very much rooted in the same value. Freedom, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Of, so it's yeah. so it, and then and then when that doesn't happen, well then violence may be necessary yeah. to restore order. Oof. Or or violence of... is necessary to eliminate oh the order that curtails their idea of freedom. So that's right. when you go storm a Capitol building. That's there you go. Yep. And so it, it's almost like just think about those three things when you hear stuff from Christian nationalists, order, freedom, order, and violence. Freedom, and you violence. begin to see that violence is always there as this threat. Yep. It's one of the trends. You know, and, and one of the one of the groups that you know, I think everybody needs to check in with. And I, I it's funny because I always have this conversation with with people I know. It's like, well, no, they're not that kind of Baptist. Uh, <laughs> but the Baptist Joint Joint Committee on Religious Freedom. Yeah. Uh, and BJConline.org. So they are one of the most amazing organizations on religious freedom, which is a founding Baptist principle. That's right. And so that's right. Uh, some Baptists don't know it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I would get every month, I used to get this publication they made, I think called Liberty or, or something like that. And I was like, I would get it. I, somebody somehow just got it sent to me. And I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be some, you know, Liberty cat. University or cat, yeah, cat or a dog whistling, whatever. Yeah, I'd open it up and I actually I was like, oh, oh, yeah. this is good. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And yep. and so their definition of freedom or liberty, yeah, is going to be different, mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. it's definitely much more expansive. Yep, and it's not limited by Christian uh, nationalistic values. That's right. Yeah. So yep, yep, yep. Well, good. now we've got our next segment of our interview with uh, Drew Straight. Drew Strait, part two. Yeah, and you know, one of the things I really liked about this conversation, I've been dwelling on it a lot, it's helped me with my preaching because I get redundant every Sunday. Uh, <laughs> and I keep saying the same thing I said the week before. But one of the things he talks about later in, the, the, in this uh, second half of the interview, he'll talk about the importance 
of those who have that uh, that opportunity, preachers, teachers, you know, Bible leaders, yep. to, you know, even if your congregation is with you on resisting and opposing this power and the influence of Christian nationalism, mm-hmm. go ahead and preach to the choir. Do it anyway. Uh, Keep bringing you know, it because there's so many layers of messages coming to the people in our congregations just through their daily lives. That's right. That they need that reinforcement. And that so. encouragement every week. Because yeah. you, uh, yeah, even though it gets repetitive Sunday to Sunday, you know what? They're hearing the same messages Monday through Saturday from, you know, and maybe they need that power washing on Sunday of. Yeah, yeah. kind of yeah. a power washing. That's a really good way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to get that. Well, I don't, I don't know if my preaching qualifies as a power washing, you know. You know, it's kind of, that sounds like a different, that's a great <laughs> baptism thing. So. There, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's hear it. Let's hear this interview. You know, one of the kind of as an aside, the 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 history of the white settlement of the Pacific Northwest, especially Washington and Oregon, and trying to make those places that were white. Yes. uh, And it was even written into the Oregon state constitution. That was finally voted out this last November officially, never to Mm. return. Wow. Yeah. And and um even though that has not necessarily been the practice for several generations, there's still places that are familiar or remember the redlining or remember the whiteness, you know, being lifted up so, so powerfully. And even as it tries to grow out of that, my hunch is that that thing is creates a, an undercurrent, almost a subconscious reactivity. And Mm -hmm. so that when something pops up, there's this instant response that feels like it's got roots Mm -hmm. to, to, to be emboldened for that whiteness. Yes, uh, to stand up against that, and 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 with this kind of Calvinist, I think largely and sometimes Catholic um, substitutionary thought that violence can be redemptive. Yeah, and and that seems to flow right right into it as as well. Absolutely. So do do you do do you do you see a way that the 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 New Testament, studying the New Testament, teaching the New Testament? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, for me, I'm really, I'm really hooked on uh, issues of atonement. I mean, those are the, mm-hmm. that's the lens that I've been working on for quite a while, and and open and relational theology as well. Moving away from that kind of Calvinist program, mm-hmm. um, how do you teach? How does it affect like the interaction in your curriculum or the development of your curriculum or the things you teach? I mean, you mentioned you're teaching a, a class on Romans. Well, that's not about Christian nationalism, is it? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's not about political ideology, is it? You know, yeah. and, and how do you, how do you keep this before your students? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question, Craig. Um, it's not hard for me to, to keep it for my students because it's something I've, 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 devoted so much time to outside of the classroom in my scholarship. So it's always kind of there in the back of my mind. Um, but I do two things. I, I, I try to attend to the world behind the text. So the historical context of, of the New Testament, trying under, to understand, especially the life and teachings of Jesus, including the life of Paul right. under the Pax Romana or the Roman peace, the ways that Rome created peace for through military domination enslavement, and then also the stigmatization of distant peoples as as inferior. And how does the early Jesus movement overlap with those concepts or not? What is distinctive about the early Jesus movement in contrast to this kind of Roman peace as we're thinking about the Pax Christi, the peace of Jesus Christ? 
So that's a, that's a major area of research for me right now that I've been thinking about and teaching on in my classes on Luke Acts. And then even this semester as I'm teaching Romans, thinking about how early Christianity negotiated militarism, how it thought about peace and peacemaking in a world that was already talking about peace extensively. I mean, mm -hmm. if we even think about crucifixion, a Roman cross was a primary ideological symbol of the Pax Romana. Um, it was a symbol that communicated to the known world that either you, you become peaceful as a subordinate subject or will make you peaceful through what I call peaceification or Roman pacification or crucifixion. Right. And it's pretty ironic that Jesus as the son of God was crucified on this Roman torture apparatus that was known for peaceifying rabble rousers and, and distant peoples to stigmatize them, not just as, as inferior, but not in, in line, getting in line with Rome's power over the empire. Um, so that's, that's an area that I'm spending a lot of time um, thinking about. And then in addition to that, continuing to think about political idolatry. I, I continue to think that the two metaphors in the Bible being the marital metaphor and the political metaphor of idolatry need more attention from pastors because so much of our thinking about it is influenced by the marital metaphor of idolatry and questions of what postures and what gestures towards state power lead one to an erroneous or idolatrous perception of God in our minds are questions that I think we need more nuance and sophistication with. And so um, I see a major part of my vocation right now in training pastors is empowering them to think in more sophisticated ways about political idolatry and ways that are, are rooted in these scriptures. So that would be the behind the text part. In addition to that, um, along with post-colonial scholars and, and, and womanist scholars and feminist scholars, I'm interested in the ways that our own social location in the world in front of the text impacts the construction of meaning making. And how has the history of interpretation that has been so dominated by interpreters that look like me and you, white men, how has that maybe... More, more like me, old white men. <laughs> sure, <laughs> the sages among us, at least. Yeah, okay. <laughs> How has that maybe skewed our understanding of, of the life of Jesus or the life of Paul? And so listening to these marginalized interpreters has really impacted me and, and also the ways that I'm thinking about assigning readings in my class and, and, and encouraging students to think about re really rereading these texts in, in new and fresh ways. One, one of the things that leads me to think of um, one of the conversations uh, I've just recently had in these series of conversations was with Pamela Cooper White, who mm -hmm. in her psychology of Christian nationalism, um, one of the things we tied into our conversation was, well, how do you talk to a Christian nationalist? You know, and uh, so good on this. And, and, and part of that is, I think what I hear is that you're empowering pastors to have this theological lens to understand, you know, the Jesus of, of, of peace. Mm -hmm. And, how would you, how would you envision them? You know, because that's a brand new gospel to a mm -hmm. Christian nationalist. That's like, yeah, that that's just completely unfamiliar. Now you're right. not teaching, you're not teaching, uh, um, preaching or pastoral care, mm -hmm. but um, you know, how would you see them carrying that into, you know, their local parishes? I mean, one part is in the pastoral care you have for your congregation, who you hope is halfway on your side, because, well, they invited you as the pastor to come. Yeah. But you also have that missiological uh, concern for the neighbors, the community in which you serve, and to whom you're called to serve. Mm -hmm. How would you, how would you see your students taking 
um, the hermeneutic you offer and helping them to connect with their communities? Yeah, that is such a great question. I would say first and foremost, that shock and awe pedagogy is not a strategy of protest. <laughs> it's not an effective strategy of, for social change, especially when it comes to white Christian nationalists who are deeply entrenched in their own belief system already. And this is one of the things that I, I learned from Pamela Cooper White that I thought was so helpful. She says that when we're talking to a white Christian nationalist, we're not just talking to a, an individual, we're talking to an entire media empire. In some cases, we're talking um, about misinformation that's gone, talking to a person that's been brainwashed by misinformation that's gone viral. We're talking to Tucker Carlson and all these people uh, that they're being influenced by in, in the evening. And so it's, it's hard to deprogram these people. But what I'm, what I'm telling pastors is that step one in challenging white Christian nationalism is to break our silence. This does not mean going on a sh doing a shock and awe campaign style Sunday morning sermon where you just like blow the roof off things and and you know tell everyone in the audience that they're they're going to hell because they're they're an idolater of power. <laughs> you know? um, but I think there are subtle ways where if yeah. we stay close to the life and teachings of Jesus and just bear witness to the truth, that I think that God can be at work in that. I can't personally, and you can't personally change these people's minds, but with God's help, um, as a part of our pastoral call, I do think that the Holy Spirit and God can call people to repentance. Yeah. If we think in the biblical sense of the word metanoia, it's changing one's mind about God, power and grace and suffering and the, making others suffer. Um, so breaking silence and staying close to the text, and, and you may have heard me say this before, but one of the strangest realities about this moment is that both, both Christian nationalists and Christians against Christian nationalists both purportedly have a deep appreciation for the Bible. Both of us read scripture, both of us look to this ancient set of books and letters to shape how we think about the world around us. I mean, even Donald Trump said in an interview somewhere that no one reads the Bible more than me. And I'm sitting there going, really? Like, really? But even him, you know, as a part of his propaganda knows that the Bible matters to these people. Right. And that's just a strange reality because we read it in such different ways. But because of that shared value, I wonder as a New Testament professor, if we can find creative ways and share wisdom with one another about ways to read scripture and to teach scripture in community that challenges us to come to a place of repentance, of, of changing our minds about who God is, how God is at work in the world, about power, and especially human difference. Yeah, there's so much, there's so much in there. Uh, one of the thoughts was, um, when you were talking about Pamela Cooper White and that, that community that's behind the voice. Yes. That's completely supporting that person in their position. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the challenges, uh, different statistics say different things, but over perhaps over half people who identify as Christian identify with some aspects of Christian nationalism. I think I saw something like 52% or something like that. It's hard when you're the minority voice, even though there's a community behind us, uh, mm -hmm. men and women across generations, because across centuries, uh, from around the world who speak with this voice. You have these. We we we're we're the we're the we're the mouthpiece of an entire community, but mm -hmm. sometimes when we're face to face with one other person, it's hard to sometimes sort out the back voices or the 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 background voices and how do you, how do you get just a conversation between two people? Right. And I think that's 
that is a is a pastoral challenge too because I've seen pastors who rely on their authority. You know, I'm a I'm, I'm a scholar of scripture. I'm supported yeah. by a denomination or a tradition that's or a congregation that has credentialed me or something like that. Mm-hmm. And relying on that authority seems to be one sure way to ask somebody to not engage in conversation. Yes. Um, but the other piece that I've seen uh, function most beautifully is when you can get our when we can get congregation members mm-hmm. to be speaking that as well to their friends and it's not this power imbalance between the preacher teacher pastor but it's person to person neighbor to neighbor yes yeah and to go back to cooper white there's there's a one line in her book that really impacted me she writes that empathy is not the same thing as sympathy and i've been doing a lot of think on empathy i'm also really influenced by dylan moran's book i think i'm getting his name right he wrote a book called he has a podcast called conversations with people who hate me Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. He takes these these vile comments that people have made against him and, and, and turns them into real life conversations that he has with these people who basically yeah. slander him in public. Yeah. And he also talks about empathy and that not all of us are in a position of privilege to offer this kind of empathy. Right. To someone who might hate us. But empathy can be really disorienting. And also pastorally speaking, thinking about what, what brought us to this moment in history. What are the structural realities what are, what are the things we've done as a human community that have put people in this, this place of fear and of isolation and, and thinking about that, can that create a space where we can offer empathy, not as an act of sympathy toward a, a Christian nationalist worldview, but as a space to create dialogue as, right. as a starting point for, for hearing them out and then having a conversation about our differences about theology and how we read the life of Jesus. It sounds like some not so basic, but kind of basic or foundational communication theory. Yeah. You know, how do you talk to each other? Absolutely. And and when people come into a a, a, con- a conversation with the assumption that they have to convince the other, both are coming at it offensively and, and it's yes. butting heads. But I also know there are times when I have a hard time you know, looking at somebody who I know I'm going to disagree with, trying to find a way to get beyond my disagreement to like, what is your motivation? How did you get there? So in our in our community context, I mean, I don't have to go very far to watch somebody, you know, to find somebody who's wearing a sweatshirt with the AR-15s, don't tread on me, crisscrossed, or we got a neighbor with a flag out front that says American Christian, and it has two AR-15s on it or whatever. I don't know if it's a fifth, it's just some attack rifle, but, yeah. you know, it's just, it's just so much out there. And it's so, it's difficult for me to like, what made you put that flag up? And I, that's probably not the best way to just start the conversation. Yeah. But it it feels so cross culturally distant, yeah. In some ways, and I think that speaks to a larger societal dilemma. Going mm-hmm. back to Robert Putnam's book uh, Bowling Alone, yes, yeah, we lost this civic interaction. We became isolated in silos, yeah. And it seems like this kind of thing is a is an outgrowth of that. And here's a powerful silo for those who feel isolated and weak to go jump into that one. Yes. And it feels like finally they're not alone. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I, yeah, I was recently reviewing some of the, some of that stuff from um, Putnam's work and some of that social cohesion theory. And it, it feels like there's, 
This is an outgrowth of that. How do we reverse that? Yeah, absolutely. And in on the progressive side of things, you know, sometimes I fear the late night parody. <laughs> I find it cathartic. I'll be the first to confess that, that the late night parody shows, you know, overviewing all the, the kind of crazy stuff that, that right wing politicians said that day can be cathartic and, and can be funny at times. But it is not an effective strategy of, of creating dialogue or of creating social change. It, it, it entrenches us even further in our information silos. And I think that that kind of parody has become almost a genre of communication and rhetoric on Twitter, and in some cases, Facebook, a little bit less so. But when you, when you, when you look at the people talking about Christian nationalism on Twitter, like if I shared 90% of this stuff with Christian nationalists in my life, they would be offended, not just because of the content, but because of the way it's delivered, you know, or, or the ways that, that we are demeaning sometimes right. or speaking so polemically. And, I don't have my finger on a pulse of a solution to this, but I think we need to be really thoughtful. If we're actually serious about effective and realistic strategies of resistance, then we need to become more sophisticated when we're thinking about dialogue and how we talk about our ideological and theological opponents. You know, a major part of Jesus's teachings and Paul's is enemy love. And how do we take that seriously as we're talking about these people, even if they drive us absolutely crazy? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and and it, I don't like the use of military metaphors. I'm not sure. It just feels like Christian nationalism fosters that. Sure. But it's this idea of um, these two different voices almost colliding like trench warfare. Yeah. And and that doesn't do anything. It just creates mm -hmm. this no man land that's barren. Mm -hmm. Um. But it feels like. Sometimes churches, and, and I'm thinking progressive churches that I'm aware of, ones that are actively speaking out against Christian nationalism, sometimes they do it uh, as if they're speaking to their own, kind of preaching to the choir, or they do it vociferously enough that they're certainly not uh, changing the opinions of anybody who disagrees with them. In fact, sure. they're driving them further into that trench. Yes. I've, I've, I've tried as a strategy to watch news channels that I would otherwise stay away from yeah and it's hard to uh, do. <laughs> and it is very difficult to do but you know it, it seems like it's an exercise in trying to hear what's feeding that other community yes and uh it and i think that's the another piece and i hadn't really contemplated this for a while but in in brad Anishi's book in that first or second chapter he uses the phrase and doesn't really go into it in depth but he uses the phrase um crisis narrative mm -hmm. And then it goes into um, crisis logic. Mm -hmm. And so whenever we experience a crisis, and it could be a small thing or a big thing, like two nights ago, I didn't sleep well because I thought, oh, no, do I have my PowerPoint ready? Am I ready for this first lecture? Mm -hmm. And then it's, you know, so that crisis narrative of fearing not being prepared spun a whole uh, series of crisis logic basically skewed thinking about what do I need to do? How do I need to do it? What needs to be done first? And then I just had to stop and like give myself a brain a timeout and like go back to sleep. Yes. But that seems to be the same thing that's happening with the voices that are supporting different communities. Mm -hmm. It's a crisis narrative. Uh, we're losing our country. Uh, we need to stand up for whatever, you this or that, or, and it's, and it creates its own set of crisis logic that gives rise to conspiracy theories that support that fear 
almost. In fact, give it fuel, but say, here's what you need to do to protect yourself against that. And and as being on what I would think is the right side of the argument, <laughs> I think the other side is, you know, having that failing crisis uh, narrative. Of course, not me. I'm on the I'm on the correct side. I don't have a crisis narrative. Yeah. I'm seeing things clearly. And I think it's where the empathy piece kicks in. Yeah. And it's almost it. Is there a need for humility among those of us who are pushing back, resisting Christian nationalism to realize hey, we're part of it too. And I don't know. I, maybe I don't know where I'm going with that, but I think there's a, a humble response that sometimes we get bound up just like whatever we're fighting. Yeah, and, and this is a huge challenge just with questions of class as well. Um, you know, someone like me and you who have graduate degrees is looked at with a lot of suspicion by some Christian nationalists. And we think about this urban-rural divide, this divide between educated and uneducated, and even all of the stuff Florida is doing right now to, to kind of vet what people can teach in, in the university systems there. And um, how do we build trust <laughs> across human difference? And parody is not going to do it. Tweets is not going to do it in most cases. Face-to-face -face conversation, dialogue, not debate. Debate and right. dialogue are two very, very different things. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, right. Becoming more, more sophisticated. You know, there, there are peace studies scholars out there like Lisa Shirk and David Camp who've written super accessible books on strategies of dialogue. And I'm, I'm learning so much from them. I'll be the first to confess that I don't know if I'm any good at it. <laughs> but I don't have any other resources to try and change people's minds, you know, as, right. as, a, as a teacher and I strive to be a kind of public theologian, you know, there's nothing else that I can do other than to, to lean on some of these sources to come up with effective strategies of resistance. And this is where I think experimentation and being willing to fail is really important yeah. for this conversation. Like it's okay to, to, to not get it right. Let's come back to the drawing table, but find allies in community where we can share our failings share successes with one another, yep. share what went well, what went bad as we're trying to have a conversation with a congregant who's on the other side of, of, of some of these, these issues than we are. Um, none of it's going to be easy though. I'm not pretending like any of this is going to be easy. It's, it's hard. This is hard, hard work. Yeah. And I, I think having that community of support is, is a key aspect of it to not do it alone. When, yep. when I was doing, um, missional consulting for, um, um, a number of congregations one of the things we created were these missional experiments and we always would say experiments never fail they may mm -hmm. give you unintended results mm -hmm. then you got to come back and retool but it's not really failure for mm -hmm. jumping into that and giving it a shot it's but then you need to come back and articulate the experience with the community mm -hmm. against a process well this is what the next encounter might look like that's good and I, and I think it's finding those allies or finding that community mm -hmm. is one of the challenges. It's, uh, mm -hmm. you know, my, my challenge right now is I'm not at finding the, um, the, in my context, mm -hmm. other ministry leaders having the capacity to even interpret the question when I come and say, hey, can you be my ally against yeah. Christian nationalism? They'll kind of like, right. huh? What do you mean? I love this country. Well, I wasn't saying anything about that. You know, it just becomes a confusion. Yeah. And so I, I don't know, maybe, do you, um, yeah, how, how, how can, how can we find those allies? How can we develop that? I think that's kind of one of those ongoing questions too, because it's really going to cross denominational 
lines. And I really like the work that uh, Baptist Joint Committee is doing because they're really emphasizing it doesn't even limit, it's not even limited to faith communities, mm-hmm. that the religious liberties of those without faith, mm-hmm. they are part of, they're, they're, they are potential allies as well. Yeah. Yeah. And this was one of the most shocking discoveries for me in, in Whitehead and Perry's Taking America Back for God. They show through data that you actually don't have to be an Orthodox Christian to be a Christian nationalist. Oh, and I'm thinking of I'm thinking of atheist family members who I'm very close to, who are absolutely Christian nationalists in terms of their worldview, and even the media they consume, some of it's very Christian, right. <laughs> and, and it's it's just a fascinating phenomenon in, in thinking about how we, yeah, how we how we challenge some of that. Well, I think part of that goes back to the political idolatry piece as well, because we have people I know people who would be fit into that Christian nationalist. Um, community mm-hmm. who have nothing to do with church sure they are not they are not yep. orthodox they're not participating but yep. there's something about the myth of a past that was white yeah prosperous middle class mm-hmm. that was you know these resources were for you from the founding of this place not for them yep and uh, and Christian language was used from the beginning to describe this. Yes. And and has nothing to do with Christian participation, Christian identity, or Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's not even that's not even an issue. Yeah. And and I find myself wanting to have that in my back pocket. To you're know, like, well, you Christian nationalists, you're not even a Christian. But yeah, that yeah. wasn't be helpful either. But right. it is something to be aware of because I think it makes it difficult to talk about issues of faith. Mm-hmm. With somebody for whom that isn't nearly even on their radar or within yeah. their 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 lexicon. Yep. Um, yeah. That's, but those that's... but those myths are, mm-hmm. you know, that this was a Christian country or something like that. Yep. Yeah, and we have great resources on this. There's, there's a brand new book that came out. Um, I've got it actually on my computer here called Myth America. Have you heard oh, that one? No. Um, no. Historians take on the biggest legends and lies about our past. It just came out a couple of weeks ago. I haven't had time to look at it. That sounds like a book that'll get outlawed in many, outlawed in many libraries and school districts. Yeah, it might. Yeah, but it's a, it's a collection of essays by prominent historians talking about these various myths. I'm looking in, I'm looking forward to digging into it more. Yeah. But um, yeah, we have a lot of resources. You know, obviously the work of Mark Knoll, who I'm sure you're familiar with, right? Who's written about some of these kind of founding myths. Andrew Seidel oh. and, and others. Um, and Howard Zinn started it years ago. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. But and I do wonder if you know, retelling that story is going to be hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> Disrupting people's meta narrative that they've been taught since they were a child is, is a huge challenge. But I, I do think that there are strategies for retelling that, that story in ways yeah. that can challenge that. Um, but this is where we have to break silence and figure out ways to, to even get into a position of, of trust and building the kind of relational capital we need with some of these people to even have that kind of conversation. One of the one of the things is the pushback against those kinds of conversations that those kind of recalibrating those myths, you know, and because it, it seems the more we move toward trying to engage in that conversation, Mm -hmm. the harsher the pushback against it. Sure, whether it is school districts or libraries, but but Mm -hmm. it's the, you know, the, you know, the idea of being woke. Um, you know, as, as if, as if being alert and awake to what's around us would be a criticism, you know, um, 
and it seems as as it it feels as if um when you challenge those things what is the phrase thou dost protest too much it's mm-hmm. almost like there's maybe an intuition that yeah there is a weakness in holding on to those myths and so i'll just get louder to hold on to them i'll become right. more threatening to those who oppose that voice and it's almost like a psychological kick uh, you know uh, kind of a kicking response rather than a critical engagement yeah um, you know, I, I, what I find difficult is I'm reading a lot of those kinds of books and it feels like it it it, it strengthens me in my position. I feel good about that, mm-hmm. but I also don't want to just blast the fire hose on somebody who disagrees. No, that's that's absolutely true. And then the other side of this coin that I've been thinking about, we have this phrase, you know, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir and it's actually kind of a negative idea among yeah. a lot of us. You know, like we apologize for it. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir right now, but I'm going to keep saying what I have to say anyways. I think in this case, it's actually okay for us to give ourselves permission to preach to the choir a little bit. Yep. Um, to, to preach to the allies, to, to Christians against Christian nationalism, to acknowledge that, hey, this book I'm writing on this, or this essay I'm writing, or this sermon I'm given, this actually is not written for Christian nationalists. This is written for those across the, the resistor and rejector spectrum, right. uh, to, to borrow Whitehead and Perry's, you know, spectrum of, of, of postures toward Christian nationalism. It's written for you all. And just right. naming that I think is okay. And, and giving ourselves permission to preach to the choir as a strategy of protest, knowing that we need to mobilize people power. We need to find allies. We need to find rejectors and resistors who are interested in rolling up their sleeves and being a part of this conversation. And I don't want to kind of shrink back and be shy about that. So I've been, this is a way, yeah. that, an area yeah. that I've been challenging myself, because sometimes I do feel like Am I just preaching to an echo chamber? Yeah, I kind of am, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> you know, an echo chamber is better than preaching to the void. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but I think that's really key because I think part of the pastoral response to Christian nationalism isn't just how to talk to Christian nationalists in your vo- in your life, mm-hmm. but I think it it is just as critical to reshape, to embolden, and to form that community yeah. that is is in that rejector side yes. that does want to know that their idea, that their hopes for resistance, they're not alone. Yes. Yeah, you know, absolutely. So it, I mean, we don't, we don't, you know, if there's a really great church song and hymn or whatever, we don't just sing it once and go, okay, you got it. No, of course we go, we do them over and over and over again. Same with the scriptures, yeah. same with familiar prayers. Yeah. We're, we are building that identity. Yes, that's right. We're building that kind of people power together. Yeah. And in, in some ways, um, that's going to be a little bit of an echo chamber, and that's okay. Yeah, yeah. And, like, I mean, I, I know that I'm not the only person out here thinking about that, but you know, some people are framing this as should we evangelize Christian nationalists? And I am not super confident that some kind of militaristic evangelism campaign is going to be successful. <laughs> I'm open to the idea of evangelizing white Christian nationalists through ideas like dialogue, um, but I think the process is probably going to be slower. And of course, we'll, we'll hope for conversion experiences. We'll pray for conversion experiences. But um, as I mentioned in my webinar, I'm thinking about this more as how do we get Christian nationalists to, to shift their loyalties around key issues? Instead of thinking about wholesale conversion, which would be awesome. I'm not saying God can't do that. Right. But how do we get them to shift biblically, theologically around key issues around like immigration or policing or questions related to capitalism and debt and whatnot? Um, that feels like a more hopeful and realistic handhold 
pastorally speaking than thinking I've got to get up there every Sunday and write the perfect sermon that's going to evangelize these people and get them to change their minds about all of this stuff, you know? So how do we think about this in small steps rather than, than wholesale conversion experiences? And my hunch is as you preach to the choir, as you build that, that people power, then Mm -hmm. it's going to be conversations. It's not programs or these projects to, because, you know, if you, if you, preached a resisting Christian nationalism sermon to a congregation full of Christian nationalists mm-hmm. and you did it week after week, you yeah. would be looking for a new congregation because they would like run you out on a rail perhaps. Yeah. You know? yeah. It, it, because the people power is on that side. There is a yeah. community that's supporting that position and yeah. just emboldened that resistance to an alternative yeah. view. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to get, to share an example of, of some of this, I was, preaching and teaching on Christian nationalism at Goshen College, which is a, a Mennonite college in, in Goshen, Indiana, a couple of months ago. And I and no one really prepared me for what chapel is like there that I was preaching in. It's it's not required. So I thought like maybe 50 students would show up. Well, it ended up being like 500 students, a lot of first generation students, super exciting uh, wow. group. Um, but I didn't even notice this, but the some of my, my friends who invited me to speak noticed that some of the baseball players um, got up and walked out in the middle of my sermon as I'm talking about white Christian nationalism. So this is an example of, of how challenging this is. Even talking to yep. 18, 19, 20-year-olds about this, how do we craft our teaching in a way? And I clearly wasn't prepared for that environment. I thought I was, I was walking into something very different right. um, where, where, where they can hang with us, where they can listen. And you can't do that for everyone especially right. when you have 500 people in front of you who've, who've got to go to chapel a few times a semester to get, get, get a credit. Right. Um, but, but it did make me think, you know, how would I have written that sermon differently if I had known better the audience that I was going to be speaking to? How would I write that sermon in a new way to talk to those baseball players? Right. Um, that is a question, a, a deep pastoral question for, for all of us right now. Yeah. That's, that's, that's an interesting insight that I think fits also with other Christian colleges. Um, you know, because I'm a sports geek. Mm-hmm. Uh, our family's been sports geeks. We're just into that. And the whole recruiting process, even for Mennonite colleges, is you go get the good athletes. Yeah. And and that's one of the chances for uh, uh, Christian colleges and universities to actually make an impact on somebody's life who has not heard an alternative story. Yes. And uh, I remember, I think it was Dale Schrag at Bethel College another Mennonite college in Kansas actually created something to, to work specifically with athletic recruits. Like yeah. you might not have heard this before, <laughs> but this yeah. is what we mean when we say this, you know, and, and went through some of that. Um, that's really good because it also says, and I think it works for community conversations. You may yes. not be sensitive to our way of thinking. You may not have used these words in the way we have used them. Mm-hmm. You know, if I were to say, Jesus Christ, I have a vision of who Jesus is and what he's about. But if I were to say that to a Christian nationalist, I yeah. would probably view him in a white robe with a red cross and you know, leading the leading the crusades. And we would both be using the same two words. Right. Yeah. yeah. And same text. Yep. 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 And that that, that herein lies our challenge. <laughs> exactly. So I think I think what let's let's go ahead and wrap this conversation up. And if you had something that you um wanted to like, what, how do you tie this in a bow? Um, is it something like, gosh, we're going to, we're going to look back on this in five years and go, great. We got that done with, 
or you know what's what what comes next i mean how does this progress yeah i you know to to pastors or congregants listening to this i i would say no personality cult pastor personality cult scholar celebrity scholar i should say no politician singular person is going to fix the challenge that white christian nationalism presents to us cuz it's going to take a community it's going to take um shared wisdom it's going to take creating spaces to break silence and solidarity with one another among christians against christian nationalism and so when we think about disrupting white christian nationalism it's totally overwhelming when we think about doing it on our own even changing a family member's minds about key issues like guns and whatnot it's, right. it's really really overwhelming um so i think taking a step back and reminding ourselves that that this takes a community and the theological part of this, kind of think about this as, as, as pastors in their ordination vows. You know, I, I, will, I will lead this church. I actually don't really have what it takes to lead this church, but with God's help, I will do it. Right. So thinking about that, 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 that kind of call and response, with God's help, I will uh, read more about white Christian nationalism so that I can define what it is and make it visible in my community. With God's help, I will try to find like-minded pastors in my community so that we can collaborate and, and meet regularly and share uh, wisdom and experiment with one another. Um, and with God's help, I am going to find the strength to step in front of my congregation and subtly and thoughtfully and prayerfully stay close to the life and teachings of Jesus and bear witness to the truth and do it with integrity and uh, pay close attention to the ways that Jesus was operating in, in the Roman world and try and find those stories, analogs in those stories that make sense for um, disrupting and challenging political idolatry and white supremacy and the other challenges that we face in our communities today. So my, my main message would be that we're not alone. We're in this together. And anyone who out there who thinks that they're going to disrupt white Christian nationalism on their own is, is probably been a bit led astray. <laughs> <laughs> and they will become very tired and disheartened. They will become very, very tired. Yes, yes. Uh -huh. Well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate uh, you offering your yourself uh, the, the time, your insight, your wisdom, your pilgrimage. I mean, it's it's led you to this place, and and I trust that it's bearing fruit with your students in your in your own uh, fellowship, congregational life, and with uh, your family and folks around you. So, thank you for for the time uh, that you you've been able to give us. Thank you, Craig. It was a, a delightful conversation. Thank you for the invitation. Where you draw the line Cause watching people die Seems to be fine But God forbid a nipple or a Jesus Christ I sort of understand It took me quite a bit Before I'd let and hold my Exit from my lips Maybe that commandment About using the Lord's name Is about a lot more than just What you say
Oh, that is a good mythical song, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> sound that voice sounds familiar. So Rhett McLaughlin, the band ah! is called James and the Shame. James and the Shame. I think yeah. James is his middle name. Rhett so. James McLaughlin. 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 Whatever. McLaughlin. Mick. <laughs> we'll just call him. We'll just call him Rhett. McLaughlin. <clears throat> so. Yeah. There we go. Rhett. Rhett. Yeah. From Rhett and Link. So. Uh, Good Mythical Morning. That's yeah. That was his debut solo album because they've done albums together, actually as a yeah duo. yeah that's right and, <laughs> mostly parodies uh, parody stuff yeah but this is this I, I i was listening to it earlier today and it's a it's it's kind of brilliant and yeah, it's the it's kind of country good. music i can really get into it's pretty darn <laughs> which good is a, which is a really small slice it's <laughs> like john johnny cash and now james <sighs> Mashame. johnny yeah. cash yeah. yeah you should um you should check out um old crow medicine show but well, some of well, maybe, but are isn't that getting closer to just Americana? It is, but it's got a lot of country uh, and shovels and rope, pretty darn yep. good. I would I would put that with Americana too. I don't know what the difference is. <laughs> okay. I think I think Americana is the country music I like. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. All right, but I think that what I really liked about this one was the was the steel guitar. It's yeah. Like, oh man. Very twangy. Very a lot of twang yeah. up in there. I love that. So. All right. Hey, so we've got a few more things to talk about. We'll hey, time let's left. hit them. Okay, let's so, hit that stuff. Yeah. I have Have you watched a spring training baseball game yet? I haven't watched them, but I've read, you know, reports and things. And um, I, I know that there's some adjustments going on to the new rules that are messing yeah, up some yeah. people. In fact, cost yeah. a team a game. I What I really like Apparently. was, uh, oh, what did, where did I see it? Um, I might have sent it to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> somebody was the first batter to approach the plate. Yep. With a zero and one. Yep. First yeah, time on, ever. On Friday. Down last on Friday. Without San Diego Padres swing. star Manny Machado <laughs> became the first major league player to begin an at-bat down. Yep. 0 and 1. Yep. Because the, the rule is there's a pitch count. It's a 20-second right. pitch count. Which is for the pitcher, but there is a rule for the batter too. They they need to be in the batting box before eight seconds are left in that pitch count. So before so before eight seconds are left. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. So they can kind of square up for the pitch. I get that, <laughs> but but it's like, well, that's got to be weird. <laughs> and isn't there a thing? Is there a thing now about not? Can they not even leave the batter's box or something once they're? I mean, that's always been a thing. Once you're established in, you know, I think you, you know, have to call got, time or something. Have well, they got rid of that? You raise your hand. And yeah, you, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. You yeah. can step out. I don't, <laughs> I, it'll be interesting. Now, now yeah. I did hear that there was a modification on the rule about defensive shifts. Yes, which I actually like that. So I didn't like the idea of no defensive shifts. That's like, sure. that made no sense. But no excessive, right? Defensive excessive shifts. shifts. There you yeah. go. And yep. and so now it'll be interesting to find out where the the boundary is between <laughs> yeah that sounds kind of subjective not right. excessive yeah yep. yep I don't think net well are they going to put grid lines out there you know? <laughs> oh and it's like okay you you stepped outside of your zone F twenty and then it'll be like playing battleship I got here's this little line boom here's this little line yeah not excessive excessive 
Yeah. Addicts. Like, <laughs> and you'll find somebody just putting their foot back and forth online, just waiting to see, you know. Yep. Oh, my word. That's hilarious. But I was reading that somebody was somebody was writing about the game and they were talking about, you know, the intention of all these rules is to keep yeah. the game moving, to keep yeah. it uh, more uh, popular with a younger mindset that doesn't have as great of an attention span. Now, you're not getting I'm an old this. guy. Yeah, I'm an old guy, but I still thought that was really an offensive way to describe, you know, kind of the <laughs> kind of the Gen Z or the younger Gen Xers or whoever, you know, it's like millennials is like. Oh, you guys just you don't you don't you don't have the ability to concentrate. I don't know if that's true or not, but yep. Like... Yep. Also, you know what? He baseball's this type of game where like you're gonna this type of stuff alienates the true fans who love it. Like this, there's things, I mean, that all this stuff is a part of it. Head th- thinking strategy. You know, all that type of stuff. That's a part of the game that's always been there. And now you're adding this in to try to attract a different audience who I, you're not, I want to feel, I kind of want to say you're not going to get them. Okay. People who need a shot, (laughs) a pitch timer to make this game appeal to them. You're not, they're not going to watch. Well, in the one article I read from the Atlantic, I think, not the Atlantic, uh, the athletic. Yeah. um, They were, they were, they were talking about their experience of going to the park and going, you know, watching one of these games. Yeah. And they timed it at two hours and 40 minutes, as opposed to the average three hour game. It's like, (laughs) wait, all these layers of (laughs) added, I mean, it took away 20 minutes. Is it really worth it? Oh goodness. Um, You know, so I, I don't know that it's made a significant impact on that attention uh, span issue. Yeah. But I, baseball is unique you know yeah it's it's a team sport except for some of the most crucial moments are one-on-one competition yep between the pitcher and the batter Mm -hmm. and one of my favorite clips from years ago was the pitcher who had he was a triple a pitcher and he had a glove that could go on the left (laughs) hand or the right hand Yep. And so when the batter in the box switched to, you know, it was a switch hitter, he would switch gloves. <laughs> That's right. You know, the gloved hand and he would go back and forth. And I remember this video that the batter went, kept on going, you know, switching size and the pitcher kept switching, you know, hands for his glove. Yep. And I mean, that's a dynamic that is rare, but it still speaks to the same issue. Pitchers yeah. stare down the batter. That's right. Batter tries to get into the head of the pitcher. Mm-hmm. I mean, throws it's, off, it's tries to game. throw off his timing yeah. with things. And that's not doing. a game. You know, that's not a play. You can write out and here's yeah. the strategy, you know, I'll pass it to you when you're over here and yeah. you know, like basketball or soccer or hockey, you know, it's like, like, it's not like football where everybody is on the play and they all have their assignment. There's right. There's such a crucial difference in baseball Yep. Uh, that makes it super unique. <sighs> yeah. yeah. So so already, you know, before the season's even underway, I, I'm like, okay, I'm being critical. So I got to back <laughs> off. Let's maybe give it a chance. We'll it's that see. time of year where I get grumpy. So, you know, <laughs> the, 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 there doesn't need to be a dark cloud over my head. In fact, what I should do is go down to Glendale or to Mesa Tempe, and go see some spring training. Games. There you go. Go watch one. Yeah. I, maybe I should get my doctor to, to prescribe that. Ooh, oh. that would be amazing. I'd write you a prescription for that. 
Well, you don't have your doctorate yet. You're working. I can I can go steal a pharmacy a pad of from the pharmacy uh, where Lisa you know, works. That that really doesn't sound appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Did you think about it as that that sentence was formulating? <laughs> yeah, I can't do but, that. But you know what would be awesome if if when you get your doctorate, yeah, I could write prescriptions like this. You could write a prescription. <laughs> now yeah. it would have to be a, a theological prescription, not a pharmaceutical one. But yeah, you could still recommend, you know, could. for your for your theological health, you need to exactly. take a trip to, um, you know, spring training games uh, down in the Cactus League. I recommend that for everybody. Well, yeah, but see, the thing is, once you write that script, then it's tax deductible for their or the, theological health. That's a whole new category. <laughs> need to get that in the tax code. Uh, yeah, I'll work on it. I'll work on it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> nice. So I think we'll have more to, more to talk about with baseball in the coming weeks. couple more weeks. Yep. We would definitely yeah. for sure. All right. All right. I like it. Okay. Well, what else? Uh, you know, award season for movies. Did we talk about? I think we talked about this a little we, bit. Well, we talked about that a little bit last week. Was there, you know, is there anything new coming up that you're like, oh, I want to get that? I, I really want to watch Women Talking. I haven't seen that yet. I know I want to see that. Oh yeah, yeah. That one. That one. A number of. Uh, I know a number of women in our tradition. Yeah. Uh, the Mennonite Church have done that because it's a story that's adjacent to. Yeah. Uh, Mennonite culture. That's right. Um, And it's, it's connected to what are called the old colony Mennonites Mm. and uh, old colony, old, old colony Mennonites came over from Russia, Prussia area. So they call them Russian Prussian. Basically they're really Ukrainian. Uh, Oh, the area of that, that where the, uh, the reactor that's getting bombarded by Russians in Zaporizhia, South Ukraine. Um, that is a, that's a, that's a Mennonite community, um, strong, stronghold. Well, Mennonites don't strong, strongly hold things. We <laughs> do it rather passively. Don't, I don't put those it's, things together. Yeah. It's, it's a Mennonite passive hold. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, you know, in our, in our history, that, that region is also called, it, it's, I think it's the Kortitsa mountains, the um, Molochna and the, so that region, they all came over in the 1870s during these programs uh, yep. under the czars. And they came to almost, if you think of a line from Saskatchewan down through Alberta and Manitoba through the, you know, parts of the Dakotas, Iowa, uh, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, keep going down to Mexico, keep going down to Peru and they just kind of all the way down through there. That's where the Mennonites from that region settled. Many of them acculturated, picked up the languages. But those in the far north, up up in northern Canada, uh, a lot of them still spoke uh, the Low German, sure, or Plautdeutsch. Plaut and those who went down to Mexico and Peru kept the Plautdeutsch. And uh, so this, so they became rather. Uh, uh, sectarian and separated communities from their from the places they live oh and so so women talking i believe is dealing with one of these um communities that is very isolated yes and because of the things that go on in that particular religious community uh, the women are without 
connection. Yeah, that's right. Assistance. Yeah. There's no, uh, there's nowhere they can really turn, I guess, other than to themselves, women yeah. talking to yeah. each other yeah. about what they're experiencing in this colony. Yeah. So that's def- definitely something that I, that uh, definitely to watch. So yes, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, I want to watch before the uh, awards, you know, at least before the Oscars. That's one. Well, I'm not. Get. I'm not that hip. I'll wait till they come out. You know, <laughs> I used to say, "Oh, I'll wait till they come out on VHS." <laughs> yeah, it doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> You're de- yeah, no, that's not a thing. Yeah, I think I had a trivia question the other day. The 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 movie Titanic was in theaters so long that it was like the what is it? it? It's something like it was one of the last to be released on VHS and on DVD. One of the first, like it bridged the two. Something like that. I can't remember. I'll have to go look up what the the trivia is on that. But yeah, was that was that a question that you had at the at the pub the other night? I think so. Something like that. <laughs> and we we got it right, but I can't remember how they worded the question. Anyway, yep. Yeah. But it's such a way that it was just the fact that it was in theaters so long that it had it was still in theaters while it was released on VHS, and then when it finished its run, finally. It, 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 there was a DVD release or something like that. <laughs> so it bridged wow, that the would two. be a long run, really. Yeah, so. yeah. It was, a, it was almost, gosh, how long? Let me look. How long was Titanic in theaters? It says here. It, w- it came out December 19th. And uh, 20, or 1997. So over a year. It was in theaters for over a year. That's crazy. 50, 54 weeks. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. That, that that wouldn't happen, I don't think. 370 It'd be hard to imagine days. anything else that would yeah. last that long. No, that's crazy. Whew. So, all right. So that's 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 life right now, right? So, gotcha. Yeah. Hey, you, I right. saw you had a question about uh, new music. Did you know there's a couple of old timer bands, old timer, Coming out with some new stuff. Uh, actually, either just came out or are coming out. So, U2 has a new band uh, album coming out called Songs okay. of Surrender. Okay. Was that a new or was that kind of a redone best of? Uh, it's re recorded songs, but yeah. they are, but they are, it's some of their uh, reinterpreted versions of 40 of their okay. songs. Yeah. Okay. So that would be that, kind of cool to hear. Mm-hmm. So, that's coming out. Paramore. Has a new album coming out. Really? They yep. haven't been around for so long. <laughs> That's right. They've got a new what, one. What is out. the name of the singer for Paramore? Uh Haley Williams. Yeah, she's got some great solo stuff. She's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I think the new album, let me look. Uh let's see here. It is called. Let me do a Google Have Para... you, did, While you're looking, have you seen her uh video for House on? I think it's called House on Fire. This is why the album's called This Is Why. No, I haven't seen that yet. Is it uh, good? I mean, it's 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 real. It's it's a pretty moving video. It's pretty I'll good. Have to watch it. So cool. And then another band similar eras from when Paramore started, um, maybe a couple of years older than Paramore. Gorillas. Oh, oh I with, did see that. I did see yeah. that. Yeah. 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 So that'll be cool. What I like about them is every time they come out with a new album, it it they it's very reimagined their sound and style, like very oh really, very right. different. Yep, quite. quite I'll probably different. have to queue up a bunch of that and just kind of go through the history. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it That's just good. came out. 
Uh, so you two, Gorillas and Paramore. There you go. So oh, and, we'll get oh, 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 and Depeche Mode has an album coming no out. No way. Yes. Really? Yeah, their 15th album coming out this month, March. Okay, so we need to get all four of them on, on a, a like a panel discussion for <laughs> yeah, a podcast sometime. Yeah. Oh, that'd be awesome. It do took you have any them... connections? Uh... <laughs> yeah, I'll see what I can do. I guess they recorded a good chunk of it during the pandemic. So maybe some of it's through studio, individual studio work, maybe. You know, I was I was listening to a podcast where some musicians were talking about how great that moment was. Yeah. Because it actually gave them a creative outlet, but they once they got the technology under their belt, they were able to do a whole lot of work. Yeah, that's right. So it worked out pretty well for some. Yep. 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 Depeche mode. And I think this will be there because somebody in their band passed away, like in the That's last thought. Yeah. So I think it's like their first one since that person right. passed away. So, yep. Mm-hmm. So tell you what, next, next week, next week when we're on, yeah. Uh, actually, next week when we're on, we're uh, beginning uh, part one of our interview with Angela Denk. Ooh, sweet. And it'll be great to hear from her on her um, perspectives on on being a pastor yeah. in that uh, Christian nationalist environment. Yes. I mean, the, the thing is so awesome about Angela. So she's a pastor. So, okay, we got a connection there. I We get it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, she's yeah. a She's a sports junkie. It's like, right. oh, yeah, we could talk a lot about that stuff, too. And she used to be a sports journalist. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. she's 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 been an athlete. Yep. Um and and she has a unique perspective uh on political issues. It's like yeah. if, she, if she had time, she should be the you know, uh, we should you know, hire her to be a a roving correspondent for the podcast. So. Remember when we were going to try to do that? We need to make that happen. We need to make that happen. So. <laughs> cool. All right. All right, so uh, let's wrap this up. And so I thought, it would, you know, we could wrap it up with a couple of minutes on a surprise question. Okay, surprise question. Hit it. What is it? All What's right. Question. If you were featured on the local news, what would you most likely be on there for? Oh, I uh, well, because of my uh, involvement with the Civic Theater, I have been in video clips and even interviews uh in the local news for those shows some of the shows so probably wow. something to that yeah probably some of them wow. but i am lately also slightly involved i need to get a little more involved with a uh a campaign to get passage on a, a school bond for a, a new school that is desperately needed in clarkston their high school is over 100 years old and um I think I mentioned this to you before, but just yeah, so many reasons yeah. like safety, health, they, they have 53 entrances that they have to secure, <laughs> which wow. is too many for a high school. So yeah, stuff like that. Oh, so, okay. That's good because that gives you two news stories. Cause I can't yes. think of a thing Oh, you know, for, for, for me, it'll be something like, you know, you're something track and field related. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be featured. My athletes might, right? Know, but they may, so, but... if some of the uh, they go to do something big, they may get you interview you to yeah, uh, share this about is their fe- experience. Featured, featured. So, ah, gotcha. I, yeah, so I mean, I you know, I think it'd be you know, the feature would be something like um, <sighs> grizzled old guy hangs out <laughs> with teenagers and it's Uh-oh. not weird no, no. and uh, it's not weird okay okay <laughs> <laughs> oh boy 
uh, it was it was funny last last week there was you know one of our coaches had a birthday and he mentioned he had turned 55 and, and then another coach said oh you're older than me you're i'm 52 and the kids looked at me and went how old are you and i said I, what do you think and i my my response is usually well i'm older than the wind but uh younger than dirt <laughs> and uh, but since they'd heard that one before i just well what do you think i let them keep guessing I was I was happy that none of them could figure it out. Yeah, good. They and no, and nobody well. over nobody overshot. So nice. That, that always was, that feels was good. Right, so yeah, <laughs> that always feels good. The the thing they say is like, well, he can do planks better than any of us. It's like, okay, so all right. <laughs> nice. Wait, I need to work on planking. Okay. Well, I've got lots to teach you. I can just do that. So <laughs> maybe maybe that could be our next episode. We'll do planks. Oh, that's going to be. <laughs> oh, yeah. Remember, we're going to do videos uh, in um, Patreon for Patreon. Teach Cody, you know, teach Craig how oh, to. That's right. Like, yeah, that'll be one of them. Oh, yeah, this is what we'll do. We'll, we'll do, do a plank, a plank episode. <laughs> All okay. right. Well, that is that. We Boom. have boomed. We have we have boomed. We have finished boomed our it. agenda. Delivered it. Signed, sealed, delivered. It's yours. There we go. Okay. I wasn't going to sing, but I had the tune going in my head. Signed, sealed, delivered. It's yours. Okay. All right. There we go. Mm -hmm. All right. So I'm going to stop (laughs) recording. Bye. Bye.